Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. So many fun things are happening in my Patreon community. Last week, my conversation with Jen Bird, owner of Athena Books in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, dropped. Jen talks about what it takes to open a new bookstore in today's world. This week, Bookstagrammers Greer and Natalie of Cocktails and Common Reads talk about their favorite and not-so-favorite shared reads. I have already started listening to one of their recommendations, and it is outstanding. I have also just added two pre-publication reads and author chats. Patron participants will have the opportunity to read Home or Away by Kathleen West and The Cartographers by Peng Shepard and have chats with those authors prior to each book's publication. It is a fun opportunity that you cannot find anywhere else. The link is in my show notes, and I hope you will consider it. I would love to have you. Today, I am chatting with Muriel Schindler about The Lost Cafe Schindler. She is an employment lawyer, partner, and head of a team at Withers LLP, a law firm. She lives in London. Her first book, The Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and The Search for Truth, was published by W.W. Norton in October 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Welcome, Muriel. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Cindy. Well, I'm so glad you're here to talk about The Last Cafe Schindler. It is a fascinating story, and I have a lot of questions. Wonderful. Far away. Before we do that, why don't you tell me a little bit about the book for those that won't have read it yet? Okay. Um, the Lost Cafe Schindler is essentially a family memoir that tells the tale of one family set in, I suppose, 150 years of the most turbulent European history all the way through the First World War and the Second World War. So you go back and forth in time. How did you decide on your format? I always find it completely fascinating when authors sit down to write a book, to how they're going to structure it, how it's all going to flow. How did you decide to do that? That's a very, very perceptive question. It's clearly from someone who reads a lot of books. So as I wrote the book, I wrote the stories of the different members of my family from A to Z or A to Z, as you would say. And then I realized that 
actually for a book that's not very helpful for the reader to go, you know, sort of from one end of 80 years to another and then back to the front again. So that doesn't really work. And so what I then did was I spliced it into five to 10 year chunks and I then wove or plaited those chunks together. So that's the way I created the structure. And you're right, it goes backwards and forwards in intense usage in the sense that some of it is in the present tense when I'm researching stuff in archives. Some of it is in the past tense. And I always like stories like that that move around in time. I don't know what it is about that, but I find it very intriguing and interesting. So I'm always curious how it comes about if someone decides to write chronologically completely or whether they're going to move back and forth. Yeah, I, I, I think it's easier for the reader to move backwards and forwards. But as long as you, you have to signpost it, I think readers are pretty tolerant of a lot of things, particularly in modern books, which can be very confusing in structure. But you have to do a bit of signposting and help them understand why you're doing what you're doing. I think that's exactly right. And it's very confusing when you don't do that. But I don't see that very often at all. Most of the time, authors are really good and I'm sure have help from editors and whomever else to make sure it is signposted. Well, tell me how you decided to write the book. I mean, actually back up a little bit. I know because I've read your book, but how you discovered your dad's papers, what it was like growing up for you, just kind of all of that. Can you talk a little bit about what your childhood was like and then discovering all these papers at your dad's home and then writing the book? Okay. So the growing up piece, I mean, like a lot of kids, you know, I loved my dad when I was little, but we did have a very turbulent, unstable childhood. My father was essentially tormented by the ghosts of the past. He had arrived in London as a refugee aged 13, having had his family wealth taken from him. He was an only child. And, you know, in a sense, he was, he spent his entire adult life. He was born in 1925 and died in 2017. He, he spent his entire adult life chasing down those assets as restitution claims. And in a sense, running up debts and litigating in order to get those assets back. So it was a life in many ways wasted as a result of that pursuit of those restitution claims. And we, as his family, lived very much on the edge with him. He, he liked to gamble with our security and safety. In some ways, when I look back on it, it was quite a compulsive gambler. So it was not unusual for us to have bailiffs or sheriffs turning at our, at our outside the door to demand money. It was not unusual for him to be fleeing creditors. It was, you know, and indeed he did end up in jail at one point for fraud. So it was a difficult, turbulent childhood. And we were always aware of how precarious things were financially. You know, on the one hand, we often had, you know, a lot of luxury, uh, lived in nice houses, had nice cars, stayed in expensive hotels. But on the other, you know, we were then fleeing from creditors and trying to, you know, escape basically a lot of the time. So in some ways, his child, my father's childhood, when he fled from Austria in, at the age of 13, that flight was constantly reenacted as we were growing up because we were perpetually in flight. And how, how was that as a child? I guess as I was reading your book, I had so much sympathy for you and your sister because I think it's really hard as a child to have such an unstable upbringing and have all this stuff happening around you and it's just incredibly stressful. And has that really impacted how you live as an adult? Yes, I like stability and security. I became a lawyer. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I think maybe even more than others, I would think. Yes, I've stayed in the same firm for over 30 years. I think that says a lot about them, my need for security and stability. <laughs> for sure. 
I mean, they're they're a fantastic firm. I I love my firm. So, you know, I didn't need to move. But equally, I I think I would have been resistant to moving partly because of the lack of stability in my when I was growing up. And I think it was you're right. It was that was very, very interesting comment. It was stressful. It was exhilarating at times. Running away is quite exhilarating. You know, you're you're engaged in a in a, in a family flight from some creditors or from a bailiff. That's quite exhilarating in some ways. But it was also deeply, deeply distressing. And I think as children, we were constantly worried as to what was going to happen. And as a result, we never brought hot problems home. I was the most trouble-free teenager you can imagine because I would not have dreamt of getting into trouble because there was already so much trouble at home. Why would I do that? Well, and you talk about that at one point when something was going on and a teacher asked you, you were crying and a teacher asked you, and then you said, I'm never going to cry at school again. You just don't want any kind of involvement from the school or whoever else in your life. Yes, exactly so. Exactly so. I think you, as a, as a child, you clam up and you don't want to tell people about what's going on. I just think that's a lot of trauma. And I guess just thinking about the last couple of years, which are very different in terms of the trauma, but like what all of these kids are going through with this just kind of constant upheaval and in and out of school and all of that. Like I have just felt this poor generation is really going to have a lot that they are trying to deal with later. And I really thought that about you for the many years you were dealing with a lot of this. And how did your mom handle it all? My mother was loyal and and intelligent, but she, you know she she loved my father, and so she stuck by him through thick and thin. I mean, she really did believe, you know, until death us do part. I mean, she it didn't really occur to her that she might have left him and you know sort of struck out on her own for more security for us. Did that frustrate you? Nah, I think that was her decision. I mean, she was the grown up, so that was very much her decision. And it was a different time. Yes. That's true. And I think that makes a big difference. So I was completely fascinated by this concept that you showed up at your dad's home after he'd passed away and there were papers everywhere and you and your sister had to weed through them. And that was sort of the genesis for this book, correct? Yes, that's right. I mean, he lived in a tiny cottage in Hampshire in the south southwest of England. And we turned up and I hadn't been there for a couple of months. And there were just, it, it was I mean, untidy is just not even, doesn't even begin to describe it. There were just papers everywhere. Every surface, every table was packed high with papers. There were papers all over the floor and on the sofa. And you, you opened the double garage and there were more boxes of papers in there, you know, huge t- tottering piles of cardboard boxes full of paper. And, you know, my sister and I and our two husbands just looked at each other and thought, oh my, you know, this is just going to be such a big job to go through this. And we started sifting the papers and some were rubbish, like very banal bits of you know newspaper clippings and stuff that we could just get rid of very quickly. Some were Nazi era documents full of you know, swastikas and Heil Hitlers and just you know quite terrifying stuff to read. Some were old papers dating right back to the mid 19th century, you know, sort of CVs and, and apprenticeships for my great grandfather. And then there were other papers that made us incredibly angry and upset. So there were papers like there were several detective reports. My father had hired a private detective to follow his two daughters in our early 20s and had, you know, basically reported on us to our father, which was, you know, a nasty thing to read. Very invasive. Yes. He had claimed often that you all were related to a variety of famous people. What was that like trying to uncover whether those claims were the case or not? Well, as I was growing up, I, I didn't really believe 
him. I suppose he, he, he said a lot of things. He said we were related to Franz Kafka and Alma Mahler, the wife of Gustav Mahler, Oscar Schindler, of course, um, of Schindler's List fame. You know, there was a whole bunch of people he said we were related to. And, you know, I would say how, and he'd go, well, I don't know, we just are. And so that was a very unfruitful conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I stopped listening. Yeah, the classic teenager, you sit there with your, with your fingers in your ears going, nah, 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 I just don't believe you. And when he died, I sort of realized that I had a whole bunch of photo albums. I had 13 incredible photo albums. And they had amazing photos in them going back to way before the First World War, not by my father, but mainly by my grandfather, who was a great photographer and an early photographer. And I started to think, well, I wonder who these people are. Is this Franz Kafka? Is this Alma Mahler? So I started to research a little bit who, who we were actually related to and, you know, roll on the internet and internet genealogy. What a fantastic place to find these things out. So I literally started on the internet and it was amazing. So some of the people we were definitely not related to, so we were, were not related to Alma Mahler. She was, a, she was also a great anti-Semite, frankly. She was not Jewish. But we were also not related to Oscar Schindler, I don't think. He, again, was not Jewish. He was a card-carrying Nazi, and he did save a lot of Jews, but he was originally a Nazi. But we were related very distantly to Franz Kafka. And so we had, you know, it was a sort of under every stone I looked, there was something different to discover. And one of the most intriguing stories, which I think you, you, you may be about to come on to, is, is he also said my father bragged, he boasted that he was related to his, his great uncle was a chap called Dr. Bloch, who had treated Hitler, who was a Jewish doctor, who had actually treated Hitler. And this again seemed rather, rather incredible, to be honest, and I never believed it. But it, weirdly, that turned out to be one of the stories that was actually true. I found that fascinating. I didn't even know that he had had a Jewish doctor for a while. No, neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> let alone that I was related. <laughs> right, exactly. Yes, let alone that you were related. Um, I guess that's one of those stories that was just lost to history, but I found that just wild. And then, of course, I guess that doctor fled, right, eventually yes. to, understandably, to to get out of Germany or Austria before. Yep. And he ended up in New York in the 1940s, and he lived until, I think, 1948 or so. And he wrote a fantastic autobiography, all in his own, you know, his own handwriting, which is lodged at the wonderful Holocaust Memorial Museum. And that, you know, you can read his autobiography there. So it is actually all true. At the Holocaust Museum in DC? Yes. Oh, I get there from time to time. Okay, I'm going to have to look for that particularly yeah. when I'm there next time. I asked them to digitalize it so it's actually available on the internet now. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, that had to be a story. I mean, to be Jewish and be the doctor of Hitler. Yeah, extraordinary. Eh? Absolutely mm -hmm. extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, this was back in 1907. And, you know, Hitler was a teenager then. And what actually happened was the, the doctor was what he, what, what he called a poor doctor, which is someone who treated all comers. He was a very, very kind doctor. And one day in January 1907, a woman turns up in his surgery complaining of terrible chest pains. And he's pretty experienced and he can pretty much guess that this woman's got breast cancer. But, you know, he sits her down, he asks her name, and her name is Clara Hitler. And he examines her, realizes that she has advanced breast cancer and thinks, oh, this is, you know, this is pretty much a death sentence. But he says, he gives her some pain medication and he sends her away and says, look, come back with your family and I will explain what needs to happen. And a couple of days later, she turns up again with young Adolf Hitler 
in tow, age 17. And the doctor explains that, you know, the mother is seriously ill and will need a, a double mastectomy, at which point Hitler bursts into tears and, you know, asks if there's any hope for his mother. And the doctor says, well, you know, maybe a little bit of hope if we can get her to have an operation quickly. And then he springs into action. He organizes the operation. He is present during the operation. And as soon as the operation is over, he goes and visits young Adolf Hitler and explains it's gone as well as can be expected. And when it's all over, the Adolf Hitler shakes his hand and says, you know, the Hitler family will be forever grateful. And so this was the one Jew in the German, the entire German Reich that Hitler liked and protected. I always find it so intriguing interactions like that, where, you know, you look back and think, I wonder what it was like to interact with him before he was this complete monster. I think it's very a very, very interesting point because he wasn't an anti-Semite age 17. He became an anti-Semite when he moved to Vienna. So when he was living in Linz as a kid, he, he, didn't, he wasn't born an anti-Semite, but he became an anti-Semite when he went to Vienna. And he talks about that. If you actually read Mein Kampf, he actually talks about becoming an anti-Semite then in, you know, in his early 20s, when he's living a very desperate hand-to-mouth existence in Vienna. Um, he's not got into art college twice, and he is basically painting postcards and working on building sites and sleeping in DOS houses. And that's the point where he adopts his, you know, his then future sort of politics. You always just kind of wonder what that was like and wish it had gone a different direction. <laughs> oh, yes. Had the Art Academy taken him, had he become a famous artist, who knows what would have happened. Exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about Café Schindler. I thought this was such an interesting story. I loved the photos in your book. It was so fun to see the photos from so long ago. I love old photos anyway. But to see what the beautiful storefront looked like and then to hear what's happened with it today. So the cafe was an amazing place. It was a triple fronted building over four floors in the middle, slap bang in the middle of Innsbruck on the main street. So you would come in through the ground floor, you'd go up to the first floor, you'd sit at a banquette near the window and you could see the mountains and you could see everything that happened in the main road outside. I mean, this is a small town. And my grandfather, he founded the cafe on his, he survived the First World War and he got back to an Austria that was destitute, that, you know, there was terrible economic dislocation at that time in Austria. And he almost as an act of defiance, I mean, you know, it's quite frivolous in some ways, founding a, a dance cafe, but he, he wanted to offer something to his local town. In a sense, it was an oasis, an oasis of fun and luxury and calm when all around was rather sort of, you know, rather dismal and I think destitute. And he, he then, he loved music. So he had music, live music there and dancing. And it was the only place really that was a, a dance cafe in Innsbruck. It was one of the first places in Western Austria that you could hear jazz. My grandfather adored music. And this was an incredible success. It had two ballrooms. It had a billiard room. It had a bridge room. It had a cafe. It had a little shop for selling, you know, retail stuff. So it was an amazing, it was a big institution. And um, people loved it. People really loved it. They went there. They met their boyfriends. They, you know, it was a special place in the hearts of the people of Innsbruck in, in, in Western Austria. Roll on to 1938. The Nazis arrive. And of course, the first thing they do is they force him to sell it. It's a successful business and they turn it into a Nazi officer's drinking club. And that succeeds for 
seven years, then the Nazis lose the war and they scarper. And then at that point, my grandfather decides extraordinarily to move back to Austria, having fled. And he was one of the very, very few Jews who moved back to Innsbruck. And he again, he just wanted to open his cafe again and carry on serving brilliant coffee and exquisite cake to people. Unfortunately, he died in 1952. And then my father inherited the cafe. He was a not a good businessman. And he, he fell out with his cousin, uh, who also owned half of the cafe. And as a result, the cafe got sold. It closed down. The name disappeared off the high street. But in a sense, it lived on in people's hearts. And 10 years ago, a young restaurateur moved to Innsbruck and wanted to open a cafe restaurant in the exact same building. And he'd never heard of us. He didn't know anything of the history of the building. But no matter who he spoke to, whether it was the planning officer, the licensing officer, his brother-in-law, they all said, look, you know, it's got to be called Cafe Schindler. And he was like, yeah, who are these dudes? You know, I don't know. <laughs> who have never heard of this family? But he went to the local archives, typed in our name and re- saw all the old photos and realized he had a ready-made history. So he's decked the cafe out in a beautiful Art Deco style. And it is an incredibly thriving business. And this year, in 2022, it's its centenary. It is the only previously Jewish-owned business that is still going and is still a thriving success in Innsbruck. I just loved all of that. I thought that was so cool. It just really, I don't know, kind of gave me chills. Yeah, it's something about, I don't know, resilience of business, of a good business concept. And the fact that, you know, we don't own it, you know, the Schindler family, it doesn't own it, doesn't operate it. But I love the fact that there's a cafe there that's still got my name on it. It's almost like the ghost, you know, that there was a ghost kind of behind the scenes directing things. I just thought it was very cool. Yeah, uh, it, it's like it's it's got its own character, the cafe, and it's done its own things. It, it's, you know, it was a success. The Nazis loved it. It even saved the life of the Nazi who ran it, I think, because he was a black marketeer. He was a naughty boy. He basically bought goods on the black market and, and sold them in the cafe. And the Nazis put him in front of a court and he would have faced a firing squad. So it was a capital offence, black marketeering for the Nazis. And because the cafe was so important to morale, Himmler intervened. And basically his only punishment was serving two weeks at the front fighting. And then he was returned to the cafe to operate it. So in a sense, the cafe saved his life. You know, that's an interesting, interesting aspect of it. Just something magical about that cafe. Mm, Yes. (laughs) What surprised you the most when you were writing the book? I loved the research aspect of it. I didn't necessarily expect to love spending sort of eight hours in an archive looking at old documents, but somehow I really, really enjoyed the research aspect. And what did surprise me the most, I suppose, I was really, really shocked by one aspect of the story. So my father had always told an anecdote about Kristallnacht, the the, the November pogrom in 1938 which basically was a state-organized pogrom against Jews to encourage them to leave the German Reich. And he'd always told the story that my grandfather, his father, had been beaten up um, using a toboggan, using my father's childhood toboggan, and that he had witnessed this. There was only one problem with this story. Yes, my grandfather had been beaten up. Yes, it was with a toboggan. Yes, it was during the Kristallnacht pogrom, but my father was nowhere near. He was safely in London. 
And so that really shocked me, the fact that he he wasn't physically present when he had always told us that he was present. Over and over again, as I was reading the book, I was so intrigued with your father and that story and some of the other stories, you know, claiming to be related to these people, whatever it was, the stories that he was constantly telling is just so fascinating, or I don't even know what, to try to understand what was going through his mind. I think he was damaged like an awful lot of survivors from from the Second World War. I think he was damaged by that time. But a lot of those people went on to do really amazing things or just live ordinary lives. You know, <laughs> My right. father did not do that. My father spent, sadly, despite the fact he was very, very intelligent, he spent all of his life chasing chasing down these dreams of, of lost assets, basically. Do you feel like you reconciled yourself to your father and your relationship with him by doing all of the research and then writing the book? Reconciled in the sense that I am much calmer. I spent an awful lot of my adult life keeping him at arm's length because he was difficult. He was controlling. I didn't want him anywhere near me. And, you know, he was always asking for money. And, you know, it was always just so painful. And so I think reconciled in the sense that, you know, he died destitute. There were no, you know, that the estate was, was insolvent. So there were no assets to come to us. But what I did inherit, of course, were these extraordinary photo albums. And what I now realize on writing up the story is that I inherited a really, really rich story, history, you know, that is a one that's worth telling, one that's an interesting story. And in a sense, that's, that's the benefit of it, of, 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 of writing it and researching it is, is reconciliation through, if you like, the therapy of writing and, and understanding where you come from. Absolutely. And I do think it is therapeutic to get the story out, to really delve into everything that happened, try to understand it yourself, find out what really happened versus what was told to you happened. And then also as a lawyer, what is that like writing? I mean, I know we're both lawyers, you still practice, but there, there's a big connection, I think, in being a lawyer and writing because a lot of people don't realize, but there's a lot of writing that goes into your job. Yes, I, I think lawyers do a lot of writing. A lot of the time I am, in a sense, either writing a letter before claim, I'm a litigator, I'm an employment lawyer, I'm either writing a letter before claim to someone or I'm writing a witness statement. That's the closest thing where you are telling someone's story for them. And you have to get the facts right. You have to look at the documents. You have to get the facts right. And, you know, that's a document that then goes before the court. So it's, a, it's an incredibly important process. And writing something in a compelling way that has beautiful grammar and expresses things clearly and beautifully is very, very much the job of a, of, of a good lawyer. I think, I suppose those qualities and those skills are, are very much the skills I used in writing the book because I mean, let's face it, lawyers are not frightened by piles of documents. You know, yes, you have to read them and yes, you have to understand them and distill them. But that's very much the skill of a lawyer is to is to read documents, distill them and, and explain them to other people. Organize everything that's present in those documents and then get it out in some manner that's going to be engaging to people. Indeed, indeed. Well, that's fascinating. And so many lawyers do end up writing books and it's probably exactly what you just described. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair summary. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Well, um, I have reread Austerlitz by W.G. Siebold, which I think is a fantastic book. It's a very, very interesting book because it, you know, it's always at one removed from the narrator. 
So the narrator basically describes someone else's story. And I very much enjoyed rereading that. And that's the story of a little boy who comes to England on, on the kinder transport. 10,000 Jewish children ended up in England unaccompanied from their, by their parents. And he ended up in a family who essentially denied his, him his inheritance in that he was never told he was on that kinder transport. He assumed that they were his parents. And so it's a story of, of, of him working out where he came from. And his family ended up in, or some of his family, his mother ended up in Theresienstadt, which is where some of my family ended up. And I think that that was very interesting, the, the narrator's encounter, if you like, with Theresienstadt. And the other book I, I really have, I'm halfway through at the moment is a book called The Conversation by Robert Livingston. That's a nonfiction book. It's about racism and how to deal with it in the workplace. So it's kind of closer to what I do as, a, as my day job, but it's a very interesting book to read. Well, Muriel, thank you so much for joining me today. I just find your story so fascinating and I thoroughly enjoyed your book. And thanks for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you very much, Cindy. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.